We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. If you start your career at 20 and retire at 65 and get about three weeks of vacation slid in each year, you'll spend 90,000 hours or more working. That's about a third of your life. The same amount as sleeping. But what is that work going to look like 10, 15, or even 50 years from now? From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Kateri Yoakum. Today, we're going to talk about the future of work starting with how companies could use technology to get up close and personal in the hiring process. And we mean very personal. You create the future. You place the individual in that future and present them with a variety of challenges and see how they do against those challenges. Then we'll look at how once you land that job, tech could help make sure you don't get lost in your work. Literally. Go straight for about 35 feet, then turn left. And finally, as our work life evolves, is it changing the way we think about the final stage of our careers, our retirement? One company I talked to calls employees entering the later stages of their careers elders, and it offers them opportunities to stick around. Work, work, work. It's all coming up after the break. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hunting for a new job is one of the resolutions a lot of folks make starting off the year. And many hiring managers have new budgets and start ramping up recruiting after the holiday slowdown. Right now, the way most people go through that process is not very different from how it was done in the past. Checking for job postings online, sending in cover letters and resumes. But with all the data out there about each one of us, what's the future of hiring going to look like? Reporter Hilke Shellman found out. It's a new year. For many of us, time to look for a new job. You update your LinkedIn and you scrub your social media. And then, if all goes well, you get an interview hoping to make a great first impression. But turns out, some companies already have a very good impression of who you are. The amount of information that people have on candidates before they actually arrive to the interview, which uh, can freak some people out because the idea that, for instance, our digital footprints or reputation could be processed and translated into an insight or an inference of your potential or talent more than it is today is quite creepy in a way. Tomas Chamorro Premisek is a professor of psychology at Columbia University and the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group. He's not talking about programs that pre-filter resumes or LinkedIn for keywords and skills. This goes much deeper. Artificial intelligence can be used to discern your personality through traces you leave online. And he says that our personality is embedded in almost anything we do. 
For example, the music that you listen to says a lot about your typical emotional states, your personality, your level of interest in different things, your curiosity level, your intelligence level. Things like uh, Uber or Lyft ratings say a lot about how cordial, agreeable, friendly or pleasant you are. So basically, the assumption is if you're nice to your driver, you'll be nice to work with. There are already artificial intelligence-based tools that can generate personality profiles from people's LinkedIn in seconds. So why would we care? Tomas says personality and cognitive abilities are becoming more important for employers compared to self-reported skills and work experiences. That's because companies keep changing their business models, and they need employees that can keep up. You really need to accept the fact that if a lot of the jobs of the future don't exist today, the best thing we can do is not train people for specific hard skills or knowledge areas or expertise, but identify whether they are likely to be good learners in the future and whether they're adaptable. Companies could, of course, use traditional personality tests. You might have heard of Myers-Briggs or DISC or the Big Five, you know, choosing descriptions like... People look up to me. I tend to be a kind person. I accept life as it comes. Do you agree or disagree? These tests have been used for decades, and most are generally accepted as reliable measures of personalities. Now, tech startups have developed algorithms that use artificial intelligence to create a personality analysis instantly, without asking you any questions. Like the company Crystal. It analyzes the words, phrases, and data points on someone's LinkedIn profile and correlates it with personality test results from people who have similar words, phrases, and data points. They use a bunch of the tests that we talked about. Another company, Humantic, uses the DISC assessment and the Big Five. Both companies are using natural language processing tools. But do they work? We started by running Humantic's algorithm over Thomas's Twitter feed. This is you, and this is based on your Twitter. So you're analytical, cautious, deliberate. And then we looked at his LinkedIn using the same company's tool. So now you are influential, energizing, and impulsive. And here you were analytical, cautious, and deliberate. Exactly. So I would say I'm more impulsive than cautious and deliberate. And the two are at the opposite extreme, you know? So same algorithm, very different results. So I think there is an element of throw everything against the wall and see what sticks here. Okay, so what does the other company, Crystal, say about him based on his LinkedIn? This one is better. Direct, assertive and competitive, I think is better than cautious, deliberate. Speak very directly or bluntly, yes. Stay focused on one point, not necessarily. I mean, I'd like to jump from one to the other. Assert yourself with confidence, definitely not. (laughs) I spent the last 10 years writing books on how we shouldn't mistake confidence for competence. So please don't assert yourself with confidence. Yeah, there are trade-offs here, right? And I think that this doesn't seem as accurate as a traditional science-based or validated assessment. Despite these inconsistencies, Tomas still thinks there's something here. But other experts in the hiring field are less forgiving. There's no science behind this. There's no real research that supports deriving personality from social media behavior. This is John Scott. He's an organizational psychologist who builds assessment tools so companies can find the best possible hires. 
it's something that we can discuss at cocktail parties, but I would never in a million years attempt to derive someone's personality from that and then use that to make predictions. We reached out to Crystal and Humantic. Crystal told us that there are no independent studies, but they validate their test internally. They say they ask every user how accurate the predictions are. So when I ran Thomas's profile through Crystal, the system asked me if it was accurate. Humantic said that the adjectives describing people's personalities in their reports are subjective, that they could change on the fly. And they said you can't judge the accuracy of the system by looking at one profile. They also disputed that there are no rigorous large-scale research studies on the subject and pointed to a research article comparing computer judgments of personality to human judgments. Creating personality profiles with the help of AI remains controversial. But John says that technology can help in a different way. He says that one of the best ways to predict how well someone will do in a given job is to test them doing that job in a virtual reality simulator. How do you predict future behavior? You create the future. You place the individual in that future and present them with a variety of challenges and see how they do against those challenges. So imagine, instead of having an interview where you talk about how well you can do the job, the employer hands you a headset and throws you right into the deep end. You could take an applicant for a CEO, say for a, an energy company. So one possible scenario is that they're holding a strategy meeting and everybody in the room gets a text that there has been a cyber attack on their nuclear plant. What are you going to do? How are you going to face that? And that's not just your stakeholders and your customers. It's the government that gets involved in that and national security. So you could set up a press conference, have the individual present their ideas on how they're going to manage this. John says this virtual job simulation could be automatically scored by an algorithm, just like a video game. The technology could work for any job. Now, you could see how you could scale that back to entry-level jobs as well, providing different sorts of challenges associated with their roles in an immersive simulation kind of a way. And John says the tech wouldn't have to stop there. Companies could combine VR-based headsets with wearable health technology which could record a job candidate's biometric data. You're nervous and your heart is racing? The headset would be able to detect that. Those sweaty palms? Registered. Eye contact? Measurable. And all of that data about the anxiety and stress you feel will be used to assess how well you're suited for the job. Since most of us have very little control over our body's reactions, this idea seems pretty controversial. A simple rule, in my view, is that if the criteria or variables or factors that you are trying to use for your decision, whether to hire someone or not, are completely out of somebody's control, it's probably not ethical. You get into areas where it may start to feel more like a medical test, and you cannot use a medical test at the front door for selection purposes. An Illinois law takes effect this month requiring companies to notify job candidates when they use AI-based video interview tools. And legislation mandating companies to inspect their algorithms for bias is under consideration in Congress. So eventually, lawsuits and regulations could put the brakes on this new world of artificial intelligence and hiring. That was reporter Hilke Schellman. 
So technology may be revolutionizing the hiring process, but it's also changing our workplace. Sometimes getting your foot in the door is the easy part. Finding your way at work can be a lot more challenging. Just a few decades ago, open offices came into play. They're supposed to break down walls and hierarchies and encourage collaboration. Plus, you could see where everyone was all the time. But those assigned open office desks are giving way to unassigned desks, quiet booths, and community rooms where employees work at different times of day. At the same time, some offices are getting bigger, a lot bigger. Well, if you've ever walked in circles looking for a conference room or even the bathroom, listen up. Tech startups have developed wayfinding apps to spare workers from getting lost at work. But there are some trade-offs, like privacy. Our reporter, Sarah Castellanos, has more. In hospitals, a few minutes can mean the difference between life and death. Doctors and nurses don't want to waste that time wandering around maze-like corridors getting lost. Take the Jersey Shore University Medical Center. It's huge. It covers about 3 million square feet. For doctors like Faraz Ajam, a resident physician, that means walking about 2 to 3 miles every day. And each building has its own, like, routes and directions, so you might get lost so easily. When you first came here, did you get lost? <laughs> so many times. So I was finding hard times for the first couple months with finding my way out, especially for, like, outpatient setting. It happened so many times when I was, like, they called me, like, where are you at? And I was like, yeah, I'm still struggling finding out which elevator I should take. But Dr. Ajam isn't getting lost anymore. A few months ago, a patient got sick in a wing of the hospital he had never been to. I was on the other side of the hospital, and I have to be there, and I just never been to this place. Wow, and you were there in three minutes? There within three minutes, and I was the first one got there. That's because Dr. Ajam was using an app called MediNav. It's like Google Maps, but for hospitals. So, yeah. so you were like literally holding your phone up and running through the hallways? Right. The place that I was telling you about was this way, like you go right, take left, and then there's so many turns that you have to make till you get there. So without using the app, it would be so hard. The hospital rolled it out last year, and it's not just for doctors and nurses. Patients can also use it, and there are staff workers like Ali Arfa, Director of Operations for Parking Services, on hand to help them. So this is a atrium where we're standing at, and then I'll just come here and I'll just push resume... And this kind of calibrates it to where you're going? Go straight for about 30 feet, then turn right. So right there, you could have got very lost. Going to one, one, one room, could have ended up in the lunchroom over there. Looks like there was a fork in the road a little bit. Yeah. And the app doesn't just work for rooms. It also lets doctors and other hospital staff search for equipment, like the nearest wheelchair, gurney, or IV pump. Go straight for about 35 feet, then turn left. The MediNav app was created by a startup called Connexient. I'm Mark Green, CEO of Connexient. The app uses small battery-powered radio transmitters, or beacons, which transmit signals over Bluetooth from the hospital worker's phone. So it's actually the phone, the mobile device, that's doing all the calculations, um, taking advantage of the signals it's receiving from those beacons, as well as some of the sensors on the phone, like the compass and so forth. And it's able to then position somebody within two to four feet of accuracy. Connexient is one of several vendors making this kind of indoor navigation technology. And workers in sprawling office campuses, in companies as diverse as ExxonMobil, Aruba Networks, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, and software maker VMware are using them. 
Employers say these apps help employees find everything from conference rooms to restrooms, and even the best routes to take to get there. Some apps have an accessibility feature, and that can be helpful for people who have mobility issues and need to avoid stairs. And the companies say there are also clear security benefits, both for employers and employees. They could use a worker's location data to assist during emergencies, like a fire or a shooting. And the apps could also identify if a worker has gone into an area where they don't have security clearance. Which means the apps don't just help employees, they also track them. And that brings up some major issues. What if they're organizing with their labor union? What if they're meeting with a labor leader? That kind of tracking would be impermissible. Samantha Atari is a lawyer at Kramer Levin who advises companies on cybersecurity and data privacy. She says that exposing that data could violate worker protections and could even result in some potentially embarrassing situations. You could think of scenarios where it could be very damaging. So one could imagine a situation where two employees are perhaps carrying on an amorous relationship but are married and would not want anyone to know that on every break they went to the same location in every room day in, day out, year over year. Perhaps that data could, if breached, could somehow have implications on their home life, their personal life. And maybe not just their personal life. In recent months, a few companies have fired their CEOs for inappropriate workplace relationships. So far, the companies say they're not mandating that employees use these apps, and they only track workers while they're on company property. But there's no federal law that prevents employers from gathering and analyzing worker location data. And Samantha Atari says there's another issue. The trove of data could be ripe for cyber attacks employees are right to be concerned, as they should be with every vendor and application that collects their data. What are the ramifications if this data is exposed? Because there is some chance at some point that it could be. Go straight for about 30 feet, then turn right. Hospital operators that run Jersey Shore University Medical Center say data generated from hospital staff using the Medinav app is anonymous and can't be tied to a specific worker even if the data is breached. And Dr. Ajam says he's not that concerned about data privacy issues. Some listeners and readers might wonder, okay, so you're using this location tracking app, which is great, but that means my employer basically knows where I am at all times. Has that ever crossed your mind? Mm, good question. Not really. I mean, sharing, you mean like sharing locations, like somebody will know where you're at right now? Mm. I don't think this is going to be a problem, even if somebody know, even if my employer or my colleague will know where I am exactly in the hospital. I don't think it's going to be any issues or problem. It should be okay. But for some workers, it's not okay. Los Angeles began a pilot study of a wayfinding app in 2018, and some employees were worried about privacy. I talked to the person in charge of the program, and even he admitted he wouldn't want his employer to know where he was every second of the day. That was our reporter, Sarah Castellanos. So you get hired, you work, and at 65, you have a big party and you retire, right? Well, maybe. In an era when many big thinkers are lamenting the breakdown of our cultural institutions, work is being floated as the new religion. And columnist John Stoll has some thoughts about that. 
My financial planner and I do these annual asset reviews where we talk about fun stuff like my retirement savings. It took about six reviews to confront a big question. I've spent my entire adult life socking away enough money so I could quit working by the time I'm 65, and my planner, his name is Joe, wanted to know if I thought I'd even want to retire. It's a fair question. I'm a 42-year-old writer with a pretty engaging job. Being a journalist offers me travel opportunities, intellectual challenge, and lots of social connections. I've only got a few hobbies, and I don't like to sit still for very long. So yeah, Joe's right. My comfortable retirement may indeed be more like work than rest. Most people spend time wondering if they'll have the means to retire. But we often ignore the equally important question, do we really have the will to retire? Our modern concepts of retirement were forged around the Great Depression, the one starting in 1929 and lasting into the 1930s. That's when Social Security was established as an insurance plan to pay a guaranteed benefit to those who couldn't work after age 65. At that time, the majority of Americans who made it to adulthood could expect to live at least that long. Men eligible for Social Security typically drew benefits for almost 13 years after that, on average. Women, a bit longer. By the time I was born in the late 1970s, 65 was hardly considered elderly, even if it fit the technical definition. Growing up in Michigan, where automotive jobs were disappearing and pensions were being taken away, the 30-year-and-out career in the car business was no longer an automatic. By the late 1990s, gold-plated retiree benefit plans were beginning to be phased out. At the same time, lifespans kept getting longer, along with advancements in personal health. Today, the average life expectancy in the U.S. is 78, up from 71 in 1970. Consider my dad. He still sells cars three days a week at the dealership where he's been working for 30 years. At age 74, if there's a poster child for 60 being the new 40, my dad's been a candidate for quite some time. To be sure, many people do still leave the workforce by age 65, but that's almost a luxury. Life insurance companies and pension funds are projecting that people entering the workforce right now could live to be 125. And a popular demographer even says that the baby who will live to be 200 years old has already been born. The government now considers 67 to be the official age of retirement for Social Security purposes, and many economists are arguing for an even older threshold so that the plan doesn't go broke. Americans aren't protesting in the streets about this. In a recent survey by the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies, half of the more than 6,300 workers interviewed said they didn't expect to retire before they turned 65. That's three times as many as in 1995. And 13% said they'll never retire. That's especially true for millennials. People who began reaching adulthood at the turn of the 21st century aren't starting their careers with the end in mind. I talk to a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings who aren't yet planning for retirement. It's not because they're pessimistic or lazy. For one, they may lack the resources after racking up a pile of student debt. And two, younger people are foremost among the Americans considering the lifelong benefits of work. One 26-year-old I talked to, for instance, expects to dice up his work life into 20-year increments, potentially devoted to completely different areas of interest. He reckons he'll take a sabbatical. Others I talk to say they'll work part-time or even go back to school later in life. And it makes sense. If you enter the workforce in the 2020s believing that you could very well be alive when the next century turns over, shouldn't that shape how you think about planning your career or careers? I'm not in that category of people thinking I'll work until I die, but I have no problem buying into this notion of working at least as long as my father. 
With five kids of my own under the age of 14, I currently view my job as one of the responsibilities to tackle in a day. At some point, as my kids make their way into college and start careers, I reckon I'll be able to revisit some of the professional goals that are currently out of reach. There are also benefits to sticking it out in the workforce. Of course, you'll earn more if you work longer, but you could also live more. Boston College research suggests even a few extra years of working beyond 65 can extend lifespan and lower the risk of dementia, depression, and obesity. And there's another aspect. The workplace is filling an emotional and even spiritual void. Think of how often you've heard so-and-so having a work wife or how many people talk about their work family. Many of the people I consider my closest friends are those I see in our midtown Manhattan offices or people I visit while traveling to report out stories or have standing lunch meetings with. Part of the reason for that is because people are working longer hours, a half hour longer every day compared to 12 years ago, according to government data. U.S. birth rates are falling and so is church membership. Our jobs are often taking the place once occupied by children, religious institutions, and community organizations. So people want to stay in their jobs for the money, for personal satisfaction, and to keep their social connections. Luckily, that may get easier in the future. Partly because work today is less, well, work. Working with computers, on a smartphone, or in some kind of artificial intelligence has replaced many of the manufacturing tasks or manual labor requirements that once defined the workplace. People have more gas left in the tank at the end of their careers. Don't tell my employer, but after 20 years of this journalism thing, I feel like I'm just getting started. I use my brain a lot, but like many Americans, I have the hands of a typist and not a tradesman. There are also technological developments that will aid an older workforce. Driverless cars could make commuting easier. There will be more automated processes that reduce physical or mental demands. And there are an abundance of retraining programs being implemented at companies. And employers are becoming more welcoming to their graying employees. One company I talked to, Patagonia, calls employees entering the later stages of their careers elders. And it offers them opportunities to stick around on a so-called glide path. The company's longtime editor, for instance, has left her day-to-day -day role editing company materials and is now teaching younger chargers how to write in the Patagonia voice. Others spend time in the archive room at the company headquarters passing down stories, traveling the world lecturing on the company's culture, or conducting sessions on the environment. Okay, so where does this all leave me? I'm trading in worrying about whether I can retire at 65 with a new strategy. Here it is. I'll pursue financial flexibility with Joe, that financial planner who asked me to think about whether I really want to call it quits. Instead, I want him to advise me on how to achieve some wiggle room in my budget within the next quarter of a century. By that point, I want to be able to do the work I like to do with the people I like to work with on my own terms, even if it means making a lot less money. That was Wall Street Journal columnist John Stoll. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was reported by Hilke Shellman, Sarah Castellanos, and John Stoll. Janet Babin is our senior producer. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything, and our technical director is Jacob Gorski. I'm Kateri Yoakum. Thanks for listening.